Hi everyone and welcome to our podcast In Good Company. I'm Nicola Tangen, the CEO of the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund and I'm your host today. In this podcast, I talk to the leaders of the largest companies we are invested in so that you can learn what we own and meet these impressive leaders. Today, I'm talking to the CEO of Ryanair, the one and only Michael O'Leary. Michael has been in charge of Ryanair since 1994. He's transformed the company from a loss-making startup to one of the most valuable airlines in the world with more than 150 million flights yearly and up to 3,000 flights daily. Michael is one of a kind leader, so you don't want to miss this one. He's also, by the way, one of the funniest people I've ever met. So tune in. Michael, very welcome to Oslo. It's great to have you here. Nikolai, it's a great pleasure to be here, particularly on such a sunny day in uh, in Oslo. Absolutely. Michael, you probably don't remember this, but uh, 23 years ago, you sent me a letter, (laughs) which I framed and put on the wall. Because in this letter, this was just after I had received uh, some kind of award for being some kind of best fund manager or whatever. I beat my boss and you sent a letter and suggested that uh, our salaries should be adjusted accordingly. And I thought it was such a cool letter. Mm. So do you write a lot of letters? I do, generally speaking to fund managers, but usually of them asking why they're not investing in Europe's <laughs> leading low-cost airline. How many letters do you write a week, you think? Oh, I'd say probably uh, at least 10 a day. 10 a day? Yeah, now most of my letters are generally to airports, government, tourism ministers these days, less so to fund managers. But, um, you know, we're always trying to push the Ryanair brand and our growth story. And what do, you, what do you tell the airports? I tell the airports that you need to lower your costs. Uh, there is huge growth available out there, particularly in a post-COVID uh, recovery period. Um, and that Ryanair, with over 150 new aircraft deliveries over the next four years, is the only airline in Europe that can deliver you that remarkable growth. So, for instance, uh, an airport like Stansted, how many letters do you think you've written them? Oh, I write letters. Stansted probably gets a letter about once a week. <laughs> <laughs> now, it's a great pleasure to welcome you here to Oslo, and you are actually coming over physically. Why, yeah. why is it important for you to meet physically? Uh, I always like, I mean, A, because we've had two years of god-awful computer meetings and Skype meetings and all that horrible stuff. And it's great to be back on the roadshow physically meeting investors. We've had very good half-year results. And uh, so we've, we have uh, eight teams on the road uh, meeting investors, fund managers. And uh, it's also nice to get out and also meet people. Mm. Now, you started off as a pretty um, humble Farmer boy in Ireland. That's me. Exactly. I'm still a humble farmer boy in Ireland. It's just, <laughs> it's just the farm got bigger over the years. It's pretty big, that farm now. But um, tell us about that uh, travel. I grew up on a farm. Uh, my parents, I was very fortunate. I was. They sent me to a very good school in Ireland, but run by the Jesuits, uh, who teach you, who pretend to be humble, but uh, teach their students humility um, and hard work. Um, went to work in KPM, went to Trinity College in Dublin, went to KPMG, hated accountancy, uh, started to went out on my own uh, buying and selling small businesses, news agents at that stage, and then started working for the Ryan family, who at the time were one of the wealthiest families in Ireland mm. and had set up the aircraft leasing business. They'd made so much money in the aircraft leasing business, they decided to do something philanthropic and give it all back. Mm. And to do that, they set up a low-cost airline in Ireland back in the uh, the early 1980s, which rapidly lost uh, as much money as they were making in aircraft leasing. Right. And how do you think your upbringing is kind of impacting the, the person you are today? 
I think it's critical. I think you grow up on a farm uh, pretty early. You learn the value of hard work. Uh, you also learn responsibility. Animals have to be fed at weekends. Uh, you can take breaks and go on holidays, but, you know, you always have to make arrangements. And I think it's a very nice way of growing up. And I've been fortunate enough to, uh, as I said, expand the size of the farm. So I'm now married with four children, teenagers, and teenagers more than any other organism in the uh, known world need uh, responsibility and farm work more than any other organism I know. Yeah. And so how do you treat them then? Uh, I think we treat them ridiculously well, much better than I was treated when I was a teenager, but they keep pointing out to me that that was the last century, Dad. They're, but they're good kids. Uh, but, you know, they all have ponies, dogs. Uh, uh, we breed horses, we breed cattle, and we have tillage, and they take responsibility. In fact, my eldest is now doing as one of his subjects for his school exams, agricultural science. Why are the Irish so obsessed about horses? Uh, because it's one of the few things we're actually genuinely good at. Uh, other mm. than that, we're making it up as we go along. And we have a long history of uh, breeding horses, racing horses. Uh, you know, we, we, we come and we are a Viking stock. And the Vikings were good at two things, well, sorry, probably three things, but two things that are legal these days. One was shipping <laughs> and the other one was horses. Uh, they're not allowed to rape and pillage anymore. But uh, And I think we inherited that from our Viking ancestors. And it's something we have natural conditions. The farms in Ireland, you know, we don't have very level land. So you generally mm. breed cattle and horses uh, because we're not big enough or rich enough to do tillage. Mm. But talking about being young, I mean, you were 27 or 28 when you became the CFO or Ryanair. How mm. did that come about? But it came about because the place was going bankrupt and they couldn't get anybody else to go in and be CFO. So uh, it was losing all the Ryan's money. So I was sent in to stop the losses, do whatever you want to stop the losses. And the Ryan's were incorrigible optimists. So they wanted to have a Tony Ryan, who was very wealthy at the time, used to fly around on Concorde. And he had this vision, which was insane, that you could fly around on Concorde but charge 10 euro airfares. Mm. Um, so he wanted it very stylish and elegant, but cheap. The cheap bit was right, but the, it was never stylish and elegant. Uh, I went and studied with him we went and looked at Herb Keller who was running Southwest Airlines in the States at the mm -hmm. time and you could realise that actually you could be cheap but it had to be very efficient it couldn't wouldn't always be elegant but you piled it high and sell it cheap and you commoditize certainly short haul air travel and Ryanair has been doing that in Europe for the last uh, 25 years through four recessions Gulf Wars Icelandic volcanoes and the formula continues to work spectacularly mm. What's been the critical decisions that you made uh, in Ryanair which has made it so successful? Critical decisions were uh, to follow the Southwest formula, have one fleet. One so Southwest is an American successful low-cost airline, right? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's the largest airline in the States. It dominates the d domestic market in the States. They have a fleet of about 750 aircraft. They carry about 150 million passengers a year. And it has been, by some spectacular lengths, the most profitable, most successful airline in the US for the last 30 years. Mm. And we have copied some of their model all one aircraft type we're all Boeing 737 although it can equally succeed with Airbuses but it has to be you have to you have to the patience then to wait until Boeing are desperate for orders so you buy aircraft cheaply mm. you go to uh, secondary airports when you're building the model we started here in Oslo and Torp although we're increasingly we now added we have three new routes in Gardamoen and you turn the airplane around quickly 25 minutes which means mm. we get two we save about three hours on six flights every day which gives us enough time with the same pilots same aircraft to operate two more flights per day 
and the great joy of deregulation and liberalisation in the airline industry is on short haul flights around Europe and in North America there is no business class anymore nobody will pay a premium for a short one or two hour flight mm. and that means it's commoditized. so we have taken the kind of supermarket of the IKEA philosophy and applied it to the airline industry uh, which means we are by some considerable distance the lowest cost lowest fare and most on time airline in Europe mm. So when you look at what you've done, what are you the most proud of? I think what we're most proud of is kind of transforming air travel in Europe. Some would say for the worst. I say for the best, we've democratized and made I mean, air mm. travel is now affordable for everybody. When I grew up in Ireland in the 60s and 70s, you, we couldn't afford to fly to get off the island. Everybody went by ferry. Now, everybody in Europe, nobody under the age of 40 in Europe... Uh, you know, they all expect to travel across Europe and can do for 40, 50, 60 euros one-way airfares. And in case if you're patient, you can do it for 19 and 29 euro airfares with Ryanair. And I think we're most proud of, if you like, that democratizing air travel, removing it from being the privilege of the rich and making it affordable for everybody. Mm. You don't spend a lot of advertising on advertising, but instead you have some uh, pretty uh, famous public statements which mm. have drawn a lot of attention. You've been was, quite successful there. Yeah, I mean, it was well, we didn't have money for advertising because we were going broke when I joined it in 1986. And at that stage, I copied the likes of Richard Branson. And it was, you know, just generate noise PR. Mm. So we did ridiculous things all in the interest of generating cheap PR. We ran ads poking fun at priests, the Pope, uh, <laughs> the Queen, Prince Charles. We, But we, have you stopped doing it now? We have have you kind of grown up a bit or? I think we've stopped. I mean, no, the world has changed. We've stopped doing that kind of outrageous PR because we're now, um, we are the biggest airline in Europe. We have a fleet of 600 aircraft and, you know, safety. We don't want to be that kind of uh, deliberate antagonistic but the world has changed what we have done we've what has changed it now in the last 10 years is we have ludicrous and I know nothing about it but we have social media teams on TikTok and Twitter and all that stuff Uh, we are by far and away I think the most uh, one of the biggest corporates on TikTok and they produce all of this to my mind mind numbingly idiotic 15 second videos uh, but they're very popular well Uh, we just filmed one yeah yeah. You and I, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. Uh, but, you know, we're just two old guys on TikTok. You know? I know. I know. Well, I'm not on TikTok, but hey. What do you think about airports? I think airports uh, are a business model that needs to change. Uh, they have, you know, they are gradually weaning themselves off being these expensive mar- marble glass palaces where they sell duty free at ridiculously discounted prices and believe they should charge people uh, for the right to enter park and enter their facilities. I think airports need to change in the next 10 years and will become much more like shopping malls where, in actual fact, it should be free to get you through. Uh, people should move freely through the shopping mall but spend money at the restaurants and at the uh, and that creates huge opportunities for airports to lower the charges to the airlines and mm. to passengers to move through the facility mm. airports seem to think that they have a god-given right to spend ludicrous amounts of money on marble and glass go to some national regulator or government that allows them some ridiculous return on that ludicrously wasteful expenditure uh, and charge airlines and passengers very high fees in up in, in Norway is a good example it's about 
25, 28 euros per passenger just to get to access the shopping centre. And then the government's levy a tax on top. And what do you th- so what do you think about the Norwegian airports? Uh, uh, Torp, I think, is a very good airport. Uh, it's owned by one of my business heroes, Olaf Thon, who I think is a genius and brilliant, and I really enjoy meeting him. So Olaf Thon is nearly 100 years old, I think, no? He's 99. I hope yeah. I'm as fit and I was, I hope I'm as fit and healthy and rich as he is when I get to 99, but I have a long, <laughs> I have a long way to go and only 38 years to get there. So during the pandemic, uh, most of the airlines laid off people, but you didn't do that. So well, what was the thinking behind that? Thinking behind it is it's just another crisis to be managed. I mean, look, the we, COVID has been the most existential crisis faced by the airline industry. I mean, yeah. I even I thought arrogantly and wrongly that this could never go wrong. We've been through the Icelandic volcanoes, 9-11, the Gulf War. We've never not flown more than 95% of our planned capacity for the next 12 months. We hedge oil 12 months out at 90% because we're always going to use 90% of our oil. Mm. And here came COVID and all of a sudden the business, we were grounded for two years. So you didn't lay off people because you didn't think it was very serious in the beginning? No, we didn't lay off people. One, because we had a very strong balance sheet going into it. And two, because we knew there is going to be a very strong recovery. And the critical thing in a recovery would be to keep your pilots and your cabin crew, not just employed, but current. Mm. We have to fly a pilot, uh, each aircraft, each pilot, each cabin crew once a month. And in some cases during COVID, we were sending a plane up once a month with 150 pilots and cabin crew on it so that we could keep their all their licenses current. Mm. We benefited, but you had to have a strong balance sheet and lots of cash to be able to make those brave decisions. We also, this time last year, hired over a thousand new pilots and two, we were hiring and training 3,000 new cabin crew. Even as Omicron uh, which uh, emerged on the 20, in the last week of last November, crushed Christmas. And then everybody thought the recovery was coming and Putin invades Ukraine and it crushed Easter. We kept going. And so we were the only airline in April, May that had all of our 73 new aircraft, all of our pilots, all of our cabin crew ready to go when this dramatic recovery took place. People had been locked up for two years and they couldn't wait to go back flying. And we have seen this summer, we've operated about 115% of our pre-COVID capacity and captured huge amounts of market share in countries all over Europe. So you basically came out of the pandemic um, like a rocket. And do you think the pandemic will have any lasting consequences? Yes, the pandemic is has certainly in European air travel has totally transformed the marketplace. As we come out of the pandemic, I think you're going to there has been significant consolidation. Huge airlines like Thomas Cook, Norwegian, for example, has totally restructured. It's emerged out of the COVID pandemic about thirty percent the size it was going into the pandemic. Uh, Flybe has gone bust. Um, Alitalia has reduced its fleet by sixty percent. TAP in Portugal has cut the fleet by forty percent, and in to all of those markets Ryanair expanded this year what's the end what's the end game here in the next three years uh, Europe is going to consolidate much like America did 10 years ago into four very large airlines you will have three large connecting carriers which will be led by Lufthansa Air France BA and one very large very low cost very low fare point to point carrier Ryanair and we will dominate the industry in Europe in the next two or three years what about the other low cost airlines uh, well there aren't any but the other middle cost airlines uh, if you look at it at the moment Alitalia well Wiz, Wiz claim to have yeah, low they, cost, they, right? make, they, they claim to be on time as well, but I wouldn't make too much attention to what they claim. Um, Alitalia will get sold to either Lufthansa or Air France in the next uh, 12 months. TAP will be sold because they've, you have to repay huge state aid to, to probably IAG, Iberia, BA, and that really only leaves EasyJet and Wiz. EasyJet, I believe, uh, will be sold to, will be bought or acquired or merged with either Air France or BA because they have a very big strategic position at Paris airports or at Gatwick, and that leaves only Wiz outstanding. Wiz are no longer making money. They've lost huge amounts of money in the last two years. They are pivoting away from competing with Ryanair in Europe by seeking new operations in uh, the Middle East, 
So they're focusing mm. on growth in Dubai and in uh, Riyadh in Saudi Arabia, which is a good, sensible strategy because if you can't compete with Ryanair, you better get out of the way. Did you try to buy Norwegian? No. We wouldn't take a present of Norwegian. Norwegian. You wouldn't take it for free? No. What about the other Norwegian airlines? Uh, well, the only other ones I know, I, I know a Fleur, uh, and, you know, while we wish them well, I'm afraid it's chronically loss-making and will never... I mean, it is, that's not the, it is very difficult to be a Norwegian or a Swedish airline, as the results of both SAS and Norwegian have demonstrated. Norwegian, if long-haul, low-cost low was ever going to work, Norwegian would have been hugely profitable, but long-haul, low-cost doesn't work. Why? The long-haul market is different for two reasons. One, quick turnarounds make no difference. You're still only... If you turn a plane around in 25 minutes or in three hours, you can still only fly two flights a day across the Atlantic. Mm. And there is a... In short haul in Europe or in North America, business class, premium travel is gone. We've blown it up. No business people want to go and sit in a business lounge at 6.30 in the morning drinking champagne. They want to show up at the airport 25 minutes before departure, get on the plane and get to their destination. On long haul, 20% of the marketplace will pay a ludicrous premium for business and first class travel and movies and flight lap beds and to, so that they can go into a business lounge and they will not move out of JFK or Heathrow mm. or Oslo Gardamoen or Copenhagen and so the marketplace on long haul is different on short haul 25 minute turnarounds gives you two extra flights per day per aircraft and that means that if Norwegian or SAS operate six flights a day we do eight with the same aircraft and the same crews we're already 33% more efficient never mind all the other cost savings and no passenger will pay you a premium for a business class seat on an intra-European flight. Mm. Do you think competition is fun? I think competition is great. I think competition is the most fun you can have with your clothes on. Really? Yeah. Why is it so much fun? Because it's the reason we get up in the morning. I think it's in, it's natural, the human instinct. You know, my, see my children, you know, your children are four or five. The first thing you want to do is race each other. You put them in a pool, they want to have races against each other. Yeah, but you're not, you're not four or five anymore. You're, you're, no, but it, it, it forms part of the same thing. I mean, we, I operate an industry which is chronically loss-making, but is gradually moving towards, I think, stability and profitability. But there's been enormous competition. And we, I mean, you look at Ryanair's growth over the last 20 years, we've been competing with state subsidised state-owned monopolies who can't touch us. What's the most fun competitive moment you've had? I th in our industry, it's absolutely without doubt, it is a doing aircraft deals at, a, at opportune timings with Boeing or with Airbus. I mean, all of our aircraft orders have been placed during moments of great crisis. So when do you buy your planes? We buy our planes when there is a crisis. We generally have a very strong balance sheet. Today, we have 4.7 billion in cash coming out of COVID because we went into COVID with about 3.5 billion in cash. We placed our first order after 9-11, 25 aircraft, uh, and it was the making of Ryanair. And ever since then, we have also placed orders after the Gulf War, uh, after the financial crash in 2007, 2007, 2009. We placed two huge bets. We ordered over 400 aircraft in two different orders in 2009, I think in 2011. And what did you do during COVID? What we did, actually, what we did was we had huge aircraft orders. Boeing were in trouble because the MAX had been grounded for two years. Mm. We renegotiated the price of the existing aircraft deals. I mean, when we got a very significant discount from Boeing on what were already very lowly priced aircraft. So what we did is we went back and we renegotiated the order, but we increased the size of the order. Mm. So during COVID, we increased our order book from 150 to 210 aircraft, reduced the price. And lo and behold, as we emerge out of COVID now, airports all over Europe are uh, looking for a return a traffic recovery and growth and we're the only airline in Europe that's taking delivery of 200 aircraft over the next five four year and a half year 
period that can deliver that growth. And w- But why don't other airlines do the same? Is it because they haven't got any cash? Well, it, mainly because they're all run by pilots and then pilots want to go off and buy shiny new toys when all, well, all is good. And I'm, a, I'm like a farmer, you know, I, I, my farming heritage in Ireland, we know we have to get through the winter, so we have to make money in the summer, uh, sell the cattle, sell the crops, and we hunker down for the winter, and then we hope always we can buy cheaply uh, in the winter when other farmers are selling crops and cattle, and we treat aircraft the same way. Mm. Hunker down and wait for the crisis. The one great thing about the airline industry, we know it is capital-intensive, cyclical. We are always three or four years away from the next crisis, so as long as you build cash, you don't have to wait long for the next crisis to come along. Moving on to the climate. Yep. Is it good news for the climate that you fly people to Estonia for 10 euros? Yes. We take them off flying Lufthansa or Baltic Air, who charge them about 200 euros, but who, uh, and they reduce their uh, carbon their carbon footprint by 50% by yeah, but switching they wouldn't to fly. Ryanair. They wouldn't fly. They wouldn't spend 200 euros. So you're, no. you're creating traffic, right? No, actually, we are creating traffic. But I mean, tourism in Estonia, tourism in Ireland, tourism in uh, Portugal needs that low cost. What we've got to do, people will still fly. There's no way of turning that clock back. Remember, flying in, in the EU accounts for 2% of EU suit CO2 emissions. So you can argue, actually, given that road transport accounts for 27% of Europe's CO2 emissions, by converting them to flying to Estonia as opposed to driving to Estonia, we're significantly reducing oh, their carbon footprint. I haven't got any particular plans on driving to Estonia. But a lot of Estonians, that's what they do. The Poles think nothing of driving 24 hours across the European continent. We need to convert them to flying, but flying on greener, cleaner aircraft, mm. and then at much lower airfares, so that actually tourism and the great interesting thing about tourism gets a lot of criticism, but tourism is one of those industries that creates jobs and employment, particularly for entry-level young people in the regions of Europe, in Eastern Europe, in Southern Italy, in the Greek islands. How do you make aviation more sustainable? Uh, no, well, at the moment, new technology. Uh, the new technology engines are incredible, what they're able to do in terms of reducing fuel consumption. I mean, I'm a selfish accountant. I want to reduce fuel consumption because it's my largest cost. Mm-hmm. But you can have reduced costs and be more uh, energy efficient and sustainable the same way. Moving on to corporate culture. Yep. What is the corporate culture in Ryanair like? Uh, I think it is uh, very open. It's a very, we have a very small management team. I mean, the senior management team in Ryanair is only 10 people. The wider management team is only 40 people. We have only three layers of management between me and somebody doing check-in at Dublin. We try to be very open. I go up and load, uh, I go up and pull boarding gates. I load bags. The rest of the management do too. And we try to be open and have an open culture. But But when you say three layers, what would the equivalent at BAB? Oh, I'd say 55 layers. <laughs> I, mean, I know in Lufthansa, for example, Lufthansa, uh, our, our, you know, it was a huge organization. We, we, we'll carry this year 168 million passengers, but we employ only 17,000 people. Lufthansa will carry this year about 130 million passengers, but they employ about 130,000 people. So they employ so nearly 10 times more. 10 times more. Jeez. Um, you know, but that German, this myth of German efficiency, you know, doesn't, isn't all it is made out to be. But, we have, we're unionized. We were non-union up until 2017. We have very good relations with our unions. We've worked through COVID very well with them. We've negotiated pay agreements. We've negotiated pay restorations. We have a very open culture. We communicate across uh, people. We have an internal app for our employees, free travel app, in news and information app. So we're always trying to be very open and transparent. Some people would say, you know, I mean, we work hard and I expect people to work hard. We pay well, well above uh, in industry average.
wages. Uh, cabin crew are paid in Ireland, uh, across Ireland, the UK, between 25 and 45,000 euros, which is uh, almost double what hospitality and retail get paid. Mm-hmm. And that's important. Are uh, people proud to work for Ryanair? No, I don't think they are. I think people are secretly proud to work for Ryanair. The problem for Ryanair is an awful lot of the PR stuff I've done in recent years makes Ryanair almost a target of criticism. So people are you know, out for a meal and restaurant. Where do you work? I work at the airport. If you say you work for Ryanair, oh, you delayed my flight or you're terrible. O'Leary's a terrible tosser. That's changing, though, this summer. We've been the most reliable airline. We've the only air that hasn't cancelled and the image is changing. And I think... People are proud to work for Reiner. I think, when, did, when did you start to become a good guy? When did you start to become friendly? Oh, probably never. I mean, I've always, you know, I'm always been a rogue. But I mean, and it's unfair because I'm such a rogue. I think a lot of very good people who work with us and deliver brilliant service get kind of caught up in my in my PR. But I think increasingly we're regarded as being very professional. I mean, within the industry, Reiner's regarded as being super professional. We've been at this for 37 years. Very high standards. Very high operating standards. Very high safety standards. But you started. But, you started to treat passengers in a much more friendly way a little yeah. while back yeah I mean I think we made a big song and dance over many years mainly to generate cheap PR we were talking about taking out seats and standing room only and we charge you to use the toilet and you know blah, blah. and I still get asked about when, how, when do you start to charge people to use the toilet absolutely the answer is never but some of that sticks and a lot of what we did for cheap PR sticks but I think one of the things we did irritate a lot of people too when we had the in 2016 2017 we'd taken it too far you know we we had we had free seating and that caused people an awful lot of stress because there were huge queues at the airports because they wanted to get on and make sure they got the front seat. We've changed all those policies. We set up a customer panel about three years ago that now meets four times a year. We had really good feedback from them. We still do things mainly online and on the app that irritates people and we need that direct feedback from our customers. Mm. Moving on to leadership, what is your approach to leadership? I think to be uh, brave, to be out there, to take responsibility when we screw up, I go out and take responsibility, but also to be open and recognize that I am repeatedly wrong. Far too many companies, get, chief executives, get caught up in this. I am always right. Everything I say is a pearl of wisdom. I start from the basis I'm always wrong. Uh, I, it's great having 14 age children because they frequently tell me, probably on a daily basis, how I'm always wrong. But you have to be humble in this business. Uh, we we make lots of decisions. We try lots of things, but we don't get wedded to it. We move back out of it very quickly. And when we know we're doing something wrong, we stop and we change it. Which leaders do you admire? Leaders I admire currently, uh, Pep Guardiola, who manages my beloved Manchester City football team. Olaf Thon I admire hugely up here in, in Norway. So Man- Manchester City? Uh, yeah, well, no, yeah, yeah. You know they have a, you know they have a Norwegian player on there. I, I have. I, we've been the best team in Europe for about the last ten years, but we couldn't score goals, and now we have bought a very uh, young Norwegian, uh, and he's brilliant. Uh, and why, I do you, like, why do you think he's good? I think he's good because he's so professional. You know, it's very difficult, I think, for a very talented young footballer at the age of 20 to get lost in booze and girls and all the distractions. And yet he comes, seems to come from a very good family. His father was, you know, and I don't think was a mid-level, a successful Norwegian footballer, but he was mid-level uh, talent. His mother was a kind of a, I think, a, a heptathlete. He's brilliantly, I mean, he's 
born to play football and score goals. But he seems to manage himself very well. And that's the challenge in professional football today. There's lots of talented young footballers coming through. But if you can avoid the ills of drink and drugs and girl, I don't mean that in a bad way. But to be professional and be dedicated. And I think that's what I admire most about uh, that. He's a 20 year old. I admire Guardiola because he's very professional, very dedicated and almost obsessive. And I admire Olaf Thon up here because for he's now 99 years old. You know, I, and I, what I admire most about Olaf Thon is he's one of the richest men in Norway, but he's incredibly humble. He has a very simple lifestyle uh, and he keeps doing 99 years later. People, I mean, I'm 61, say, when are you going to retire? I say, why do I want to retire? I want to keep working. It's better to wear away rather than rust away. Why is humour important? Humour, I think, is the the way we puncture our own stupidity. Uh, I like humour. I'm probably a bit wacky anyway. And it's very important when people get pompous that you puncture that with uh, humour. I like Monty Python. My favourite movie of all time is The Life of Brian, which punctures brilliantly the Bible. It was great, and I know it off by heart because it was the movie was banned by the Catholic Church in Ireland when I was in college in 1979 to 1983. But you could show the movie if you had an art club and it was all, it was all done. So I went through four years in Trinity and almost twice a week we went to see The Life of Brian because it was being put on by every different college club to raise money or to get membership or it is. And it is, you look at it now, it is spectacularly prescient the way it poked fun at the Bible and all of that kind of particularly and if you're growing up in Ireland in the 70s and 80s and the Catholic Church ran the country the life of Brian was just one of the great uh, humorist puncturing of religious biblical and many other um, uh, holy cows and long may humour continue to poke fun at holy cows Now, you've been CEO for 28 years. Yeah. That's quite an achievement. Um, What keep you going? I enjoy the industry. I enjoy the work. Um, I'm reasonably well paid and I'm a large shareholder in Reiner. I own 4% of the company, so I am wedded to hopefully continuing to see it grow and thrive. And then my children will waste all the wealth that I have created in the next generation, or hopefully they'll go and do something useful with it. The CEO of Goldman Sachs, who was on the podcast recently, said that uh, if you are happy two-thirds of the time, that's good enough. I think that's a bit optimistic. I think if you're happy half the time, that's a pretty good good batting average. I mean, I've been very fortunate. I have, uh, you know, I've been reasonably successful. I, you know, I have been reasonably uh, rich. I don't have economic worries, but I'm married. I have four children who are teenagers. I worry more about my children um, now probably than I worry about uh, the future of Ryanair. But life should be full of challenges. The reason to get up out of bed in the morning is because there's a philosophical challenge, whether it's a business challenge, an economic challenge or my daughter was in a school play school musical the lion king two weeks ago these things challenges are sent to motivate us and you know i have want to lose probably a stone of weight in the next year i we have to have things reason to get up out of bed i think the worst you look at what's the key what's the key to raise happy kids I think uh, a very good and uh, understanding wife who will make up for my personality flaws uh, and then, you know, uh, not to spoil them, you know, make them work, make them. I mean, we're very um, as parents. All my children are very active in, in school and in sports. We don't have a Wii machine in the house. The only thing that we've denied them is we do not have a PlayStation. We will not have a Wii in the house. Uh, If you want to engage in sport, go outside and run, cycle, play rugby, swim. 
and we will drive you ridiculous distances to do all that. Um, and then try to be balanced. We expect you to work hard in school and we expect you to work hard, um, but you choose what you want to do. And then you need a bit of luck. You know, all families are dealing with there's drugs in the schools and in the in every society in Europe. Mm. Now, we have a lot of um, young people uh, listening to the podcast. What yep. is your advice to young people? My advice to young people is one, be optimistic. The future is in your hands and don't listen to the naysayers. In every generation, you've had somebody in the marketplace going, the end of the world is now. I have never been more optimistic for the future. But you have, you face huge challenges that we didn't have. You deal with social media at ridiculously young ages. You deal with drugs at ridiculously young. I saw my first drug when I was going in Trinity. I was 21. And, you know, they were, the, the drug addicts in those days were layabouts and wasters. But there's a very very bright future out there but you must work for it you got to work hard you are must work hard you must be productive you must challenge yourself whether it's in sports or it's in uh, your professional life or in your studies be optimistic work hard and then I would say go to college get a good education and then go and change the world be ambitious for yourself for your family for your future because ambition is what drives humankind and ambition is what will transform the world in the next millennium in the way ambitious people have transformed the last millennium Well, that's a great um, place to end. A big thanks for coming on the podcast Thank and a you. big thanks for coming all the way to Oslo to do it in person. Always my pleasure to come to Oslo, particularly to meet with Norse, who are a very small shareholder in Ryanair, but I hope to persuade you to become a much bigger shareholder in Ryanair into the future. Very good. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.